Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Technology. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. Our discussion today focuses on technology and innovation. More specifically, we'll examine the barriers to innovation and the benefits of allowing unfettered tinkering. To help us with these considerations today, we have Adam Beer, a senior research fellow with the Technology Policy Program at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and the author of the new book, Permissionless Innovation, The Continuing Case for Comprehensive Technological Freedom. Thank you, Adam, for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Jasmine. Great. Now, first of all, let's give the audience a little of your background, if you can. So I guess basically they want to know, why should we believe you? Do you need more people to substantiate what you're going to say? Sure. Well, just very brief background. Uh, my experience has been primarily in the world of public policy research for the past 22 years. I've covered technology policy for a variety of different research organizations. Um, currently, uh, as a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, I study the law and economics of uh, regulatory policy and specifically technology regulation, um, and along with my colleagues, write on a wide variety of emerging technology issues uh, with a particular focus on information technology, network technologies, the Internet, and so on and so forth. Great. Thank you very much. Now, this book we just seen that you publish Permissionless Innovation, The Continuing Case for Comprehensive Technological Freedom. What was the impetus for this book? So, Jasmine, as I looked around at all of the information policy issues that I had been studying over the past several years, I increasingly noticed that regardless of the issue or technology in question, at root, there was always a fundamental tension about uh, or over what I call the permission question, Mm -hmm. which is the question that we generally might phrase as follows. Must the creators of new technologies seek the blessing of public policymakers or officials before they develop and deploy their innovations? And in each and every debate over network technologies or information technologies, you can find two conflicting attitudes or worldviews at work about how to answer that question. Mm-hmm. So one one worldview might be known as the precautionary principle mindset, which generally speaking refers to the belief that these new innovations should be potentially curtailed or even maybe disallowed until developers can prove that those innovations will not bring any theoretical harm to individuals, groups, institutions, norms, laws, business models, traditions, you name it. That's one worldview, the precautionary principle. Mm-hmm. Then the other vision uh, or other way to look at this question would be referred to as permissionless innovation mindset, which is permissionless innovation refers to the general notion of a sort of freedom to tinker or the notion that experimentation with new technologies and business models should generally be permitted by default unless a compelling case could be made that it would bring serious harm to society, in which case 
it should be preempted. But generally speaking, those who subscribe to more of a permissionless innovation mindset would say that if problems develop at all, let's deal with them later through some other alternative approach. So this is sort of a spectrum, right? I mean, these are two different worldviews, and there are many different gradations or, or places along the spectrum in between. But generally speaking, what I try to do in the book is to say first, just empirically speaking, that's the sort of lay of the land as I see it. This sort of dichotomy is what really divides people politicians, academics, uh, pundits, and all of these debates. And then the secondary purpose of the book is to make a normative case, a sort of full-throated defense of the permissionless innovation worldview going forward. So those are the sort of two, two components of the book to sort of lay out that argument or that dichotomy that this is the sort of fundamental central fault line, if you will, in technology and network information policy debates. And then secondly, here's why I argue we should be sticking more with permissionless innovation as the default. Now, is permissionless innovation also called other things now? Well, um, it's tricky. Um, You know, how to label this is is difficult, and I want to be careful because – it could be viewed as a loaded term, and I don't think anybody would say they're against permissionless innovation, but when you get down to the details of what it means, there can be differences of opinion. Um, but generally speaking, I haven't found a better term to encapsulate what I try to refer to as the attitude of uh, essentially allowing innovation by default without permissioning from above to start. And uh, this term, permissionless innovation, has been around for a while, but I wasn't able to find exactly who coined it or who to attribute it to. It's just had sort of general circulation, most notably in debates over copyright policy. Mm-hmm. But what I try to do in the book is expand it beyond that and say, well, it's this is really a divide about much more than just copyright law. This is a divide that we see about safety issues, security issues, privacy, and many, many other issues. Certainly. Now, the idea of permissionless innovation, it must come with um, some criticisms. Absolutely. The, the first and most notable criticism is that some harms are serious enough that, as I suggested, we do need to potentially have a precautionary principle approach that preemptively disallows certain forms of innovation. So in the book, I make it clear, for example, that in other contexts, we have disallowed certain types of technologies and innovations. Um, we have uh, through outright prohibition of them. Um, I mean, obviously, we don't allow people to own uranium or nuclear power plants or other things like this, there are catastrophic costs to society by allowing the diffusion of certain types of technologies that, for lack of a better term, we might refer to as weapons of mass destruction. We don't allow bazookas or tanks and things like this. And there's always a good debate about how far down the line to go about these sorts of things. But in the book, I point out that With regards to information technology and network technologies, for the most part, we don't have those sort of extreme cases. We don't have cases of sort of catastrophic uh, destruction or serious societal harm associated with them. It doesn't mean there are no harms, but generally speaking, to the extent that I can sort of encapsulate the central lesson of this book in one line, it would be that with regards to these technologies – 
living in constant fear of hypothetical worst-case scenarios about them and then premising public policy upon those worst cases means that best-case scenarios will never come about. And that's why I prefer to allow for innovation by default as our sort of operational norm until a case can be made that we should pull back or that we can't correct for these problems after the fact um, just as effectively. So you're talking about some of the fears that uh, those critics of permissionless innovation have. Now, are these fears, and, and you mentioned, I should say, in your book about techno panics? Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could just expand on that idea of techno panics for the audience. Sure. So uh, before I published this book, I published several law review articles that essentially this book is condensed, a uh, condensed version of many of those law review articles. And one of them was on techno panics uh, and threat inflation in information technology debates. This paper was published in the Minnesota Journal of Law, Science, and Technology in early 2013. And techno panics generally refers to um, sort of any sort of elevated state of fear about a new technology, especially its impact on the young, but not exclusively the young, and that panic or that fear is not rooted in sort of a rational examination of the facts or, frankly, in science. It's just based upon sort of hypothetical concerns or worst-case scenarios or boogeyman factors um, that arise in society, uh, in our culture, or in our political system for a variety of reasons. So I'll give you one concrete example. With the rise of social networking services, Um, over the past decade. Early on, we saw a very serious techno panic develop about uh, sort of strangers online and the threat of new social networking services like MySpace being, quote-unquote, a predator's playground. Mm -hmm. This led to an extreme overreaction by many uh, safety groups and then by many politicians to try to restrict access to social networking services or even have full-blown online age verification and identity identification uh, authorization for those social networking sites on the theory that that would stop this predation on children. The problem was is that there wasn't any evidence to suggest that these sites or services were really being used by predators to groom children um, along uh, in the extreme way that some of the critics had suggested. In fact, it was actually a pretty bad strategy for predators to use that approach um, because ultimately you, ne- you still needed to utilize other types of uh, interactions with children um, if that was what you were, was, was going to happen. And that was not proven to be the case. There were multiple task forces on this. I served on several of them. Uh, most notably, one at Harvard University concluded that this there just wasn't much evidence to back this up. And, oh, incidentally, the solution that you proposed, the online age verification or authenticity, identity authentication, isn't ultimately going to solve this problem. So I use that case study in the book as one of many as sort of how techno panics often pervade the rise of new technologies. Um, in this case, it was for safety purposes. And then later we realized this ultimately was an inflated threat and that we probably could go about solving this problem to the extent it exists at all in other ways with either targeted laws or other types of uh, approaches um, besides essentially outlawing a service or heavily regulated in the fashion that they suggested. 
Is is panic just really kind of our MO in the United States? We think of <laughs> rock and roll and video games and movies. Is that Yeah, just- uh, I think unfortunately it is. Uh, I think, uh, I don't want to suggest this is uniquely American. Right. Uh, I do think that many cultures share these problems. In my paper on technopanics and now in my my new book here, I have tried to identify some of the potential reasons why it may be the case that those sorts of panics develop. Um, It it could be for a variety of reasons. Uh, I I identify hyper-nostalgia as one reason, that we have sort of uh, what psychologists call sort of a tendency towards rosy retrospection bias or the idea that, you know, the good old days have passed us by. And, you know, and that is a sort of pessimistic bias or a tendency to overestimate um, how good the, the old days were relative to today when that's not always the case. But there also are generational differences that help explain it. Uh, There's never been a generation probably that walked this earth that didn't think that these new kids and their newfangled devices were sending us straight to hell, right? It's just something all of us fall into. And I know I've tried to avoid that myself as a parent of two young children, but even I sometimes cursing at the the clouds, uh, literally the internet clouds, saying, damn you, Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, and yet that's what our kids are into today and just as our parents were cursing as you said rock and roll and rap um, and before that they were cursing other things so I don't think that ever is going to stop that sort of cycle I I think what's most troubling is that there are people out there that play into these fears Mm -hmm. and I'll just give two examples one would be the press and one would be special interests Um, the press plays into it because frankly bad news sells and many media outlets and sensationalist authors sometimes use these sort of fear-based tactics to gain influence or to to sell print. And that's troubling, but again, that's always exists. It's just that we see a lot more of it today in in the sort of world of information overload that we live in. Second of all, there are special interests that benefit from promoting fear. Um, There are technology companies that say, well, we've got a product to sell you that will be your silver bullet solution to all your problems or fears. Um, We've seen this again and again, especially in the field of like online child safety or cybersecurity. I don't want to say suggest that all of those companies are just out to screw us over. Some of them have solutions that are very valuable, especially in the privacy and security space. But some of those companies know that they're essentially playing into fear or promoting those fears to essentially promote their own products. Um, so, you know, those are just four of the explanations I lay out about seven or eight different possible reasons why fear t- sometimes dominates, especially debates about new technologies um, in our society. Sure. And, and you talk about technocrats and the fear of l- con- loss of control um, with uh, wanting to keep things as they are. Perhaps you could talk right. a little more about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's very important at this point to point out that when I talk about uh, the technocratic mentality, that, that this really is absolutely not a left-right, Republican-Democrat, conservative-liberal kind of issue. Um, the technocratic mentality or the idea that sort of there are sort of an elite or a uh, 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 sort of a, a, a philosopher kings out there that can sort of better see a better path forward it's something that is goes goes back to Plato versus Aristotle. I mean, you see those debates have pervaded history uh, about you know the role of elites in guiding society to a better path. And today we see that with regards to new information technologies, the sort of technocratic impulse um, on many 
from many different uh, sides of the political fence. And, um, you know, there's been other people who've described this. Virginia Postrel wrote a wonderful book in 1998 called The Future and Its Enemies. And the way she described this divide is as, uh, as a contrast between the worldview of dynamism versus stasis. Mm-hmm. And the stasis mentality was one that says, well, what we've got is pretty good. Don't rock the boat. Let's be careful you know, about any new forms of innovation or progress, whereas dynamism suggests that, well, we need to understand the future is uncertain and, uh, you know, stability and stasis ultimately are going to discourage types of learning and progress and innovation that could benefit us in a variety of ways. So what I argue for in the book is that we need to be careful, careful about the technocratic mentality that says that there's sort of the one best way of doing things or an only a single path to follow or that only the perspectives or policies of the past are worth following because sometimes with new innovation you do need to think outside the box and again I don't spend a lot of time talking about copyright in the book um, but that's one example of where you know we've always had a sort of single way of thinking about copyright policy and, and the need for more and more extensions of copyright terms or patent terms, but now all of a sudden we're realizing, well, maybe not. Maybe we have less scarcity in the world. Ideas can flow more freely without the need to have uh, really onerous types of rules that uh, try to incentivize it at the expense of other types of speech or progress. So I argue we need to extend that thinking into these other spheres, other policy spheres of safety, security, privacy, and so on. So I think the most controversial of those would, of course, be privacy, where I think the, the impulse to try to have more of a preemptive approach to this is probably the most pressing area today. Sure, sure. So has the disposition with respect to information technology been one of permissionless innovation, or has it been in the middle of that? spectrum between permissionless innovation and the precautionary principle or or where really yeah that's a great question i think that's a great question and i think the the answer is that with regards to the internet and modern information technology at least here in the united states over the past 20 years it has been strongly rooted our policy has been strongly rooted in the idea of innovation allowed by default or permissionless innovation you see this if you go back to the clinton administration and you read the clinton administration's report on electronic uh, commerce um, that was written by ira magaziner um, and you look at his statements and the statements of uh, vice president gore and uh, the president himself they were strongly uh, suggesting in those documents some of the early policy documents about the internet that we should essentially take a wait-and-see approach of being very careful about trying to intervene and address every possible theoretical problem because the internet and its sort of more spontaneous organic bottom-up nature tended to work these things out kind of nicely on its own. Um, and also you see this in the US, uh, uh, 47 U.S.C. 230, Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which basically immunized from liability online intermediaries and said, generally speaking, we're going to allow speech to flow very freely online without sort of traditional onerous forms of liability that could discourage new forms of innovation. Uh, I myself have personally described Section 230 as the Internet's 
greatest law ever <laughs> because it basically said, look, we, we should be very cautious about taking a traditional sort of approach to liability norms and imposing it on this new uh, freely flowing technology. And I think today you look at sites and services such as Yelp and eBay and many others, and some of these you do wonder would they have existed if not for that. So the point is, is that I think we are... We see in the Internet sort of the model of what permissionless innovation can mean and do in terms of promoting speech and commerce. It doesn't mean, however, that that hasn't brought us problems. And the way I've stated it in my own work is that you can't have the most open and interconnected platform for human expression and interaction ever and not expect some problems to also happen. Sure. People are going to say and do stupid things. Um, I mean, I've spent a lot of time writing about not just the problem of objectionable online content with relation to children, but more specifically the problem of online hate speech and harassment, which is a very serious problem online. And, you know, that is an an unfortunate outcome or an unintended consequence of having this unbridled approach to openness and speech online. And then with regards to commerce, you look at things like spam. And, you know, uh, the various types of tracking technologies that exist, there are things that exist today that promote commerce and allow for uh, an amazing array of choices online, but it also cost us in terms of our security or our privacy or just our nuisance or an annoyance to us. And so... I basically look at this in a very pragmatic way and say, well, yeah, you've got to take some of that bad to get the good. Um, and we have to finally get to some sort of concrete notion of what we mean by harm online and how you want to address it to deal with those problems. And my preference, as I point out in the book, is always more of the bottom-up approach of saying, how can we think about remedial efforts after the fact um, in an ex-post kind of sense so that we do not derail through ex ante regulation, the sort of beneficial things that can happen and that we can't possibly imagine going forward that would only happen without allowing for the sort of uh, permissionless innovation. Sure. So is the disposition of permissionless innovation a critique of perhaps what's going on now or the move perhaps to regulate more things in information technology now? Well, I think permissionless innovation is definitely giving way to more of a precautionary principle impulse. (laughs) And I think you see this because there have been some issues that have just become so – there's been such a tension over some issues, particularly with relation to security and privacy, that are really starting to to, to force a rethinking of whether we want the sort of unbridled permissionless innovation we've seen so far on the Internet. And this has led to a backlash, not just here, but of course even in Europe, uh, against the sort of American approach um, with regards to for data collection and data use activities online. Um, of course, in a post-Snowden world, a lot of this is uh, is changing as well. Um, uh, but that's sort of a different issue with regards to government data collection. But just private sector data collection, which you know, obviously has had some amazing benefits in terms of all the wonderful online free services that we enjoy today uh, and devices that we now have in our pockets. But, of course, the trade-off has been we've had to essentially surrender a certain amount of our privacy and security um, in exchange for that. And there is now this tension 
right now that's percolating here in the states about do we need to have more preemptive approaches to data use, data collection, uh, whatever else on the on the theory that if we don't, there are going to be some serious long-term harms that develop. And again, my argument is not that harms won't ever develop. It's absolutely not that. It's that maybe they will, but we should wait and see unless it's a really catastrophic and serious harm that we cannot possibly tolerate, and we can discuss what those might be. But in most cases with regards to network technologies, I don't see those worst-case scenarios coming to pass because I either believe, A, that we will have constructive, ongoing, organic, bottom-up solutions to them that will solve them or could solve them, or B, that we as a society and we as individuals will adapt. And chapter four of my book is entitled Taking Adaptation Seriously and trying to discuss how is it that we as a people have again and again confronted serious gut-wrenching technological change and yet somehow found a way to assimilate those technologies into our lives without you know, essentially taking that precautionary or, or, uh, or prohibitionary approach of saying, no, we just have to reject these technologies entirely. So then, and you mentioned this a bit earlier, but what should be the role of regulation in a permissionless innovation system or society? Right. So um, how we regulate matters. Uh, the answer, uh, the wrong answer is no regulation. There's going to be regulation of all technologies. There always have and always will be. But how we regulate really matters, and, and there are essentially sort of, again, these sort of ex-ant versus ex-post options that we can consider. I mean, in an ex-ant fashion, the sort of preemptive categories of regulation would involve sort of outright bans, censorship, prohibition, um, licensing procedures, uh, and I have a whole spectrum of these sort of things in the book where I lay out the different ways you could take that sort of more preemptive approach to addressing theoretical harm mm-hmm. uh, and regulating technologies accordingly. And then the alternative perspective, this, this sort of uh, the ex post uh, bottom-up organic approach um, could also involve law, and those laws would be things like the tort system and using common law remedies after the fact to address harms as they develop or relying on, say, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission to use its Section 5 Unfair and Deceptive Practices Authority to go after uh, bad actors who don't uh, keep the promises they make to their customers or the public. Uh, It could involve other targeted laws that already exist. We have laws that deal with privacy and security, not just privacy torts, but even specific targeted statutes that go after specific harms that we've identified, especially for things like health and financial-related information flows. And we also have discrimination law that is on the books and that could address some of this. So I go through this in the book, and I point out, like, this is, again, another spectrum we might think about in terms of how to regulate, how to address these harms. The, The key question, though, is should that regulation, again, be anticipatory? Should it try to predict and then preempt a theoretical harm from developing? Because I can sit here and conjure up, like anybody else, a whole parade of horror stories about every new technological innovation. But ultimately, I don't know if all of them will come to pass. And I also don't know how people will respond to them or adapt or assimilate them. I spent a lot of time talking about 
past case studies in the book, and my favorite continues to be what I think is a far more disruptive technology than the ones we deal with today, which is a century ago, the rise of the instant camera, mm-hmm. and how in a very short period of time after the camera's introduction, you started to see widespread societal usage and, and, uh, and distribution of that technology. It was an enormous invasion of the privacy norms of the today of that of that day, led to a lot of hand wringing, and ultimately the public was forced with this choice. You know what were we going to do? A lot of scholars were suggesting we needed to regulate and limit the ability to take photographs in public. But at the end of the day, the public made a different choice. Basically, it said, "Well, what do we think of the camera?" We like them. We're going to buy them. We're going to integrate them into our lives. We're going to take a different approach. Our norms are going to change. There will still be norms about appropriate photography, places, time, places that you should be doing it and not doing it. But we still struggle with this today. And a lot of the debates we're having today about new technologies are basically just debates about, again, where should we use cameras or record things about people. And these debates never really go away. Now, are there model societies from which we can look to and say, hey, they have this disposition of permissionless innovation and they're doing well? Yeah, I, 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 again, I think that the U.S. does set a pretty good example of what permissionless innovation means and what it can mean for an economy and for a culture in terms of the innovation that flourishes. And if you just look at how Europe has dealt with uh, privacy uh, law over the past 15 years relative to America, there are a lot of people who are uncomfortable with the fact that America has been as, has sort of, has had as relaxed of an approach to data collection as we've had. But I think it's unambiguous. And I know this is probably going to be the most controversial thing I'll say here today, which is I think it's unambiguous that America has benefited from having that more relaxed approach and Europe has suffered. And what I mean by that is that if you look at high-tech information innovation in, the, in Europe relative to the U.S., it isn't even close. Um, Europe's household names for information services and, and gadgets are American companies. Yeah. And America's companies are the envy of the world, and it has to have something to do with the fact that we had a different policy regime. It's not the only factor. We also had better venture capital markets and we had different tax treatment of these things. There's many factors. But certainly our data policies had to have a little something to do with this. I argue it had a lot to do with it, in fact. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't change at all. It just means that we should acknowledge there's a trade-off there and that taking a more permissionless innovation approach relative to Europe's more permissioned or sort of mother-may-I approach to data usage and collection has meant that we've had firms that were able to sort of think outside the box, use data creatively, and engage in forms of innovation that led to serendipitous data discovery and innovations. And European innovators, by contrast, have had their hands tied to some extent. Um, I recognize that's controversial because right now a lot of privacy advocates want to change the law (laughs) so that the U.S. looks more like Europe and takes more of a permissioned approach on data usage, especially as we enter the so-called Internet of Things. Um, We can debate that if you like. Uh, I think it's just important, though, to point out that empirically speaking, and I think a lot of economic studies recently show this, the evidence is in that permissionless innovation has yielded more economic benefits. The question is, has it been worth it considering the theoretical social harms uh, of the sort of information we've had to give up? I mean, is that 
a counterbalance is that over is, does that outweigh the economic benefits? Um, that's a that's a very touchy subject with a lot of subjective uh, values in, involved in it. So then, is is permissionless innovation more of a, a cultural thing? Be- I mean, we we mentioned or you mentioned Europe and privacy, and a lot of scholars will say that the reason that European privacy and U.S. privacy laws are different and distinct is because of the cultural differences. But is permissionless yeah. innovation a, kind of a cultural phenomenon? I definitely think it partially is. Of course, culture does inform politics, but I think you're right. I think there is something about uh, the sort of cultural priors here that we could talk about. I mean, there's just generally more of a, I think, an openness to the idea of entrepreneurial innovation um, here in the in the states relative to some other cultures um, where other priorities would trump. And there's been some interesting writing historically about this. With, in particular with regards to privacy and safety issues. And it's interesting because a lot of uh, psychologists and sociologists have looked at this and said, look, there's a real transatlantic clash when it comes to issues like privacy and security and safety. Um, privacy, obviously, Americans look at it, and I did write a law review article on, uh, in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy where I talked about this, where I talked about how you, know, you, you look at Americans' conception of privacy, and they're really tied up with the notion of privacy in the self and in the home. And it's almost rooted in our notions of property, whereas the European conception is more rooted in a, in a more amorphous theory of dignity and dignity of the individual um, that is a broader trump, if you will, than the more narrow U.S. conception that is tied to physical things, namely your, your what's on your body at the time or what's in your house at the time. And you see this all the time with regards to how uh, various statutes or rules are enforced, uh, privacy-related things are enforced in the States versus in Europe. Again, and I'll leave for another day the question of who's got that balance right. I personally still prefer the U.S. approach for a variety of reasons, but I know that's losing intellectual uh, uh, support as people grow more and more concerned about potential privacy violations, not just from the government, but the private sector. And, you know, you, see, you again see this cultural clash with safety. I talk about this in the book. You know, the, the Europeans have a much, much stronger concern about hate speech and harassment issues than probably we do here in the States. Um, uh, and we don't have strong rules. In fact, our First Amendment probably disallows almost all forms of hate speech regulation. Mm-hmm. But then you look at how the Europeans want to deal uh, or, or how, they, how they do deal with uh, objectionable content, namely things like nudity or, or uh, you know, cursing or whatever. And they just shrug their shoulders and they say, Get over it, you prudish Americans, you know, and, and we're like, what are we going to do about Janet Jackson, right? And, and it's like, how does that work? And it's because our cultures evolve differently. Uh, same for violence, right? We don't worry as much about violence, strangely, violently themed content, but the Europeans are very worried about it. So this has got to be rooted in culture somehow. Uh, and it's evolved over many, many decades, and there's many, many influences, and it continues to affect policy in a profound way on both sides of the Atlantic. And we were talking about Europe, and we consider the Europe, uh, West, the West, and and pretty developed. Are there any developing, as we would call them, nations that have a permissionless innovation, or at least up until now have had permissionless innovation, and has been 
great for their economies and growth? Yeah, I, I would say there's selective permissionless innovation. What you find is that there are some governments that try to use a permissionless innovation approach um, in a more targeted, almost industrial policy-like way. And I would just suggest looking at, say, South Korea and China for two examples, because obviously those are countries that, especially China, that do have in some other ways more repressive policies, uh, or Taiwan's another example. But uh, you then start looking at specific approaches they take towards certain sectors or, or, or innovations, and you realize they're actually trying to work hard to promote them, whether it be through uh, a more relaxed regulatory regime or even through sort of centralized direction and subsidization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it remains to be seen if that works uh, relative to the, the, the more relaxed U.S. approach uh, across the board. But um, I would say that no country has probably embraced the permissionless innovation ethos as comprehensively as the United States has with regards to the Internet and information technology, because at some point, almost every government, sometimes even including our own, has a pet peeve that they want dealt with or some other political priority that they feel like, well, no, we can't allow permissionless innovation or unbridled commerce and speech in this regard because of the societal concerns or uh, or public interest concerns we have about it from whatever perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, up until now, we've been talking about ideology and ideas and policies, which are kind of abstract. And uh, I wonder if we can get into what permissionless innovation looks like in practice. So can you point to some permissionless innovation types of applications going on right Right. now? Right. Well, um, I mean, first and foremost, we should realize, again, I'm I'm repeating myself, but the Internet as we know it in the United States and most online commerce, digital commerce, has been very much driven by the permissionless innovation ethos. And for the most part, the United States government has taken a very light-touch regulatory approach with regards to these network services and these technologies. So I think to the extent the proof's in the pudding of anything, I would just say see the Internet and see how it's played out. It's not been perfect. It's certainly not completely uh, sort of a laissez-faire kind of thing. There are regulations at the margins. But for the most part, the information economy, at least as it's played out here in the States, is a pretty good uh, case study uh, to be considered. And it's what I lead the book off with. That being said, I think we can look at more specific uh, types of technologies, I mean, from various types of smartphone technologies and and, uh, big uh, data-driven technologies, social networking services, where for the most part we have not preemptively regulated. There continue to be some legitimate security, safety, and privacy concerns that we're dealing with in each of these contexts. But for the most part, we've seen just an unprecedented explosion of entrepreneurialism and creativity flowing out of those sorts of sectors. Um, More generally, I I would also say don't just look at the proprietary side, also look at the open source side and the amazing innovations flowing out there where you really do have something close to unbridled innovation happening with very limited uh, central direction uh, of any sort, whether it be from regulatory policy or even uh, much else. So, you know, I think those are good examples. Now, going forward, I've tried to tease out in the book a series of what I call innovation opportunities, which are short case studies of emerging technologies where 
currently, just through a lack of regulation, we are witnessing the beginnings of interesting types of permissionless innovation, and it remains to be seen if they continue. And so I, I won't go into detail on all of them. I'll just I'll reel off the list. But I'm talking about things like the Internet of Things and wearable technologies, mm-hmm. um, things like uh, private commercial drones and the various uses of, of, of them, things like 3D printing and additive manufacturing technologies, mm-hmm. um, and then intelligent vehicles or autonomous cars, driverless cars. These are interesting emerging technologies where you're seeing some really exciting things happening with a whole heck of a lot of these same concerns floating around, like, what are we going to do when all of our cars have no humans at the wheel? You know, who has liability when there's a problem? Who who should insure and how? And, you know, what are the rules of the road literally need to look like there? Um, same with commercial drones. You know, how is it safe to have people operating these things in airspace so that they don't hit airplanes? or that they don't interfere with people's property or privacy, and and so on and so forth. But in each of these areas, as I highlight in the book, you're starting to see some really great applications develop, not all of which were initially envisioned by the creators of these technologies. And, I mean, you look at the incredibly exciting things that are happening with 3D printing. I mean, I keep people keep sending me these videos of people with prosthetic hands that they've printed off 3D printers and shared the blueprints, open source blueprints, all across the globe with other innovators to help kids that are born with, without, uh, without limbs that, you know, need to have some sort of a, a prosthetic. Mm-hmm. People are doing this in an open source, bottom up fashion now. You know who regulates that innovation? Right now, it's not clear. Is that an FDA issue? Is you know what international regulators should do about that? What happens if some of those prosthetics don't work or actually create new arms? That's these are all interesting questions. But the point is, we're starting to see exciting things happen. If you take my approach of you know continuing to prefer permissionless innovation, we would wait and see if serious problems develop in these fields. I recognize with some of these technologies, that's not always possible. So, for example, drones is a pretty good example where we need a little bit of precautionary principle (laughs) because if not, they run into planes. So we're going to ultimately have rules, and we already have some tentative rules today that basically say, don't you dare fly your private drones next to an airport. That's a pretty smart, preemptive, precautionary rule. There's also probably going to end up being rules about the size of these commercial drones. And if they go over a certain poundage, uh, I don't know what it will be, 50 pounds, 75 pounds, that'll just be considered too big and too dangerous because it could crash mm-hmm. or it could just be too damn annoying to hear these things buzzing around your neighborhood. But the smaller ones, oh, yeah, I think these are coming. I think they're going to be used to deliver a variety of products, and I think they're going to have some real benefits. Um, but that's how you see this balance playing out between precaution versus permissionless innovation. Um, it does depend on the technology, and you have to take into account the harm scenarios and how legitimate they are and the, the gravity of the potential harm that could develop. Now, are the innovators themselves, are they building permissionless innovation into their new products so with things like open coding, sourcing, licensing schemes, and, and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think they are. I, I think in most cases they do. There, there are, there is on, there's an ongoing tension, Jasmine, in, in these debates about, you know, uh, the future of coding, the future of uh, technological development about proprietary versus open source tension. And it's been an ongoing thing now for many, many years. Um, in a policy sense, it's come up in some of the copyright wars, but just more generally in the world of coding and uh, digital innovation, this is a serious tension. And it's one that dominates debates between not just 
just tech giants like Microsoft versus Google, but also just small-time developers of things like video games. Um, you know, there's there's increasing number of open-source video games, but there's a whole heck of a lot of proprietary game developers. So obviously, when I talk about permissionless innovation, what should be clear is that I'm talking about this as a policy issue. Mm-hmm. But when you get down to the nuts and bolts of actual product development, there are still going to be a lot of the private developers and coders who are permissioning how their technologies work. Now, whether or not that works or not is an, is an interesting question because we've already seen our experience with things like digital rights management that DRM doesn't work so well in most contexts. Um, even when developers really try hard to permission things and make sure people only play by the rules that they want to lay out, it doesn't always work out so well. Um, that being said, in some contexts, it does work. I mentioned video games. We have a lot of DRM for video games, and for better or for worse, it has generally worked and allowed for a premium on games, at least for consoles. It's astonishing to me that games still go for 49 to 60 bucks a pop. I mean, that, that's amazing. And that we have a lot of restrictions on how you play those games on major consoles. I won't get too into that, but the point is is that we do have that sort of permissioning at the code level, and we could get into sort of the Lessig argument about, like, is code law here, and how much does private coding dictate uh, private uses by consumers? I've been far less concerned about that so long as we have the opportunity for more innovation and competition and churn to happen in these markets. So I've never got too obsessed about when AOL was ruling the roost or when MySpace had its supposed dominance in social networking, or even today with other technologies, because I'm a big believer that there's a lot of disruptive innovation that happened in each of these sectors. And so whether or not they're coding in, as you suggested, permissionless innovation by default, uh, by allowing or disallowing various other types of secondary uses, or what Jonathan Zittering calls generative uses, (laughs) to me that's secondary to the question of, do we have options? Do we have the ability to have new players come along if the old players are making it difficult for consumers to use these products or giving consumers a hard time in other ways? So, you know, some would say that's a leap of faith, but I think it's a leap of faith bolstered by the fact that we've got 15 years of a lot of creative destruction that's happened and that we've witnessed in these markets, witnessed by the fact that a lot of the first generation, even second generation of various types of uh, online companies and players have come and gone. I mean, MySpace ruled the roost for what? Two, three years? And bye-bye. And people say, well, Facebook's got the lock now. Well, we'll see. All I know is I've got a lot of, a lot of other options that I use besides Facebook. I'm not a big Facebook user. Um, so in each of these layers, you could, you could look at them and say, well, do we have enough competition? Um, and that should be more of a determinant about whether or not we, uh, we have any sort of invention. All right. So this has been a really interesting discussion. Now, if a person wants to pick up your book, they're, they're browsing the shelves or, or they're online and they, they see about your book, um, what should be the, or what's the, I guess, the most important thing they should know and what would make them want to pick it up? Well, first of all, if they want to, if they do want to pick it up, and I hope they do, they can get it for free. Um, I've got free PDF copies available online if you go to permissionlessinnovation.org. Um, hard copies are also available uh, via Amazon, and there's the ebook versions that you can buy cheap. I think they're a buck or two. <clears throat> but at permissionlessinnovation.org, they can find the free copy. I would say they they should they should read the book for this reason that there's no getting away from the fact that going forward. 
each and every technology policy debate, not just for the Internet and information technology, but for all networked technologies, is going to involve this tension between precaution and permissionless innovation. And that tension, regardless of how you feel about it, is something that's it's important to understand how these worldviews are formulated and what we might see as the sort of fault lines between them. And then finally, as I try to outline in the book, there may be some alternative approaches or uh, suggestions for how we can solve a lot of these thorny problems without always making it about a policy fight between these two visions. I spent a lot of time talking about education and empowerment solutions, about transparency and disclosure policies, um, and just giving people more information to make good choices uh, is ultimately the best solution, I believe, to probably like 75 to 90% of a lot of these problems. Can't solve all of them, but if you better inform consumers and citizens about technologies, then I think they're in a position to make better choices or at least find other alternatives. Great. Now, if they want to hear or read more from you, where can they find some more of your writing? Right. Well, they can come to uh, my page at the Mercatus Center, a quick uh, search using their preferred search engine will find me pretty easily at the Mercatus Center at Mercatus.org, where all of my academic writings, including this book, are available uh, in addition to all of my past law review articles and blog posts and uh, magazine work that I've done that led to this publication. And you also contribute sometimes to the Liberation Yeah, to uh, a, a, yeah, a, a, web, uh, a fun little blog called uh, techliberation.com. It's a little tongue-in-cheek title. We use the Technology Liberation Front. Um, but techliberation.com, uh, you can come and find uh, myself and many other uh, scholars and policy wonks who write about technology regularly, uh, pontificating on a regular basis about all these issues. And they can follow you on Twitter? Yep, on Twitter at my name, Adam Fear, uh, at Adam Fear, that's T-H-I-E-R-E-R on Twitter. And and thank you for helping promote this, Jasmine. (laughs) Thank you for coming on the show. It's been a great discussion. Now, you've heard it, folks. Go out, read Permissionless Innovation, the continuing case for comprehensive technological reform. See you next time.